Hello, everyone. Um, we are going to take a moment, um, pray. I'm going to read some scripture, and Jeff's going to preach on it. Um, so thank you, God. We welcome your presence and spirit here. Um, be with us as we read your word. I, Paul, want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. You have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Katie. Um, we're trying, we're going to be trying some different things here, specifically soliciting your guys' input. Um, in a way, thinking this idea as we gather together and as we gather together online, uh, there is a difference. We want to figure out how can we maximize the experience of people gathered online, but how can we do things when we physically gather that you can't do in another context? Like what makes gathering uh, special? And what can we do? Because in the, back in the day, the church, church services were also a place where a lot of content was delivered. You preach a sermon, you get some action points, you get that. Now, you're a podcast away from the best teaching by someone that has a research staff of 20. Now, there's also a lot of garbage teaching in the podcast world, obviously. But what I'm saying is there are ways to, so many ways to get content that did not exist. I mean, think of before the printing press versus having your own Bible. Like the main point of gathering together is reading the word because that's where you got to hear the word. So in this post or current pandemic world, we don't want to get back to normal. We want to figure out what opportunity and evolution is God inviting the church to. Because I think we're an invitation to evolve in the same way the printing press gave us an invitation to evolve. So if you guys have ideas or feedback and uh, you know what, please. Okay, for an example, like I'll just give one that I gave. I gave a suggestion to myself. Is the idea of caught in the act. Like do we take time that? A way to share testimonies without people feeling like they're being self-aggrandizing. Maybe a way to do a, a reading of scripture. Maybe uh, ways to do prayer together or meet and greet. You know, what are things that we can add or offer to this collective activity? who is gathered. So um, I just want, uh, we'll be talking about this throughout, but I really feel like we have an opportunity that this is like kind of like a, 
a Jesus sandbox we're gathering in. We're gathering at this playground for sandbox, and we can do anything in this sandbox, and let's feel the freedom to try it. Now, the idea isn't to be clever. The idea isn't to be cutting edge. The idea isn't to be super relevant. The idea is to make space for God and us to be together in this way. Amen? So, um, I love what Eve shared in tying kind of gratitude and thanksgiving into the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, this idea was we're going to Galatians. We're going to try something a little different today. We're going to talk about uh, how we can do what we can do to make space for what we can't do. Do what we can do to make space for what we can't do. And I'll just be honest, what I can't do, I can't do the fruit of the Spirit. Patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. If you add that list, if it's a list of things to do, it's a list of things to be guilty, feel guilty about. Because specifically, these are fruit. No one who here has built a fruit? Anyone ever made a fruit? No. We cultivate fruit. So the, I think the metaphor of a fruit with all these facets we really need to hold on to that element of the metaphor because we can't do fruit. We cultivate and make space to fruit for fruit. But there are things we do to cultivate plants and cultivate fruit that we can do to make space. Now, this is frustrating for people who want to check mark the boxes and immediately be where God is. And a lot of times that comes from an idea of shame or self-loathing. Like, I need to make myself acceptable to God. And what's the fast track to do that? But here's some idea to entertain. What if you're already acceptable to God because he says so? And he just wants to walk you through making space to have a more brilliant and beautiful life. What if God wants to assist you in having a more beautiful life? So that we're talking about cultivation, not doing. And I was thinking that uh, do what we can do to make space for what we can't do. And that's uh, one thing I want you to keep in mind throughout our whole study of Galatians. So, uh, recap is, this church was plagued with some, church was planted by Paul, Paul kind of gave him the baseline to go with it, and then some other people, presumed from Jerusalem, came and said, okay, we need to teach these guys how to be really properly religious. You know, they've got this inkling of goodness, but we need to make sure they're good Jews, because as we know, to be a Christian is to be Jewish, which was the big argument in the early church, by the way. The biggest argument in the early church is, can you be a Christian and not be Jewish? And Judaism was considered a denomination. I mean, Christianity was a denomination of Judaism. And Paul's work was to say, no, it ain't. Christianity, the following Jesus is for everyone, both Jews and Gentiles. And they may have taken different paths to get there. So Paul is making peace, and here, and in Romans from a different perspective, he's bringing these disparate groups and trying to help them to come together. And these guys that wanted to make people super religious basically are saying, you got to eat these things, you got to not hang out with these people, and by the way, adult men, you need surgery now and get circumcised. And if you checkmark those boxes, you're acceptable. Now, frankly, as painful as undergoing adult circumcision sounds, which it sounds very, very painful. Uh, it's a one-shot deal. It's a one-shot You, If you do these things, and if you just add these rules to the algorithm of life, you're acceptable. But you know what those rules don't do? They don't transform us. They don't give us beautiful lives to live. In fact, 
Sometimes there's a sense of superiority that comes with following specific rules where you might become a jerk. And I, I've seen this happen, like, oh, so-and-so was such a good friend, and then they, they got Jesus, and now they won't even hang out with me. I've heard, I've heard many stories of when people embrace Jesus or think they embrace Jesus by embracing a code of conduct and superiority, they become the opposite of Jesus. They become the enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees. So code-based Christianity becomes a stench and ugly. And listen, I have lived in the ugliness of code-based or virtue-signaling Christianity of check mark the boxes. And frankly, some of the boxes may be good. What if the boxes give 20% of your income to the poor? It's like, well, great. That's good. People are eating. But you can be a jerk about it. You can be a jerk about anything that's good if you have a check marking or a code-based deal versus I'm in a relationship. You know, what? becoming like Christ is like a husband and a wife becoming like one another. Like Adrian and I have taken on certain attributes of each other uh, over the 25 years, 26 years we've been together. Now, thankfully she hasn't taken on all my attributes. She still has much better hygiene uh, and she doesn't walk funny. But the idea is some of our language has changed around each other. Our practices have changed. What we laugh at has been modified. We've taken on the nature of one another in the same way as a community, as we follow Jesus, we can take on elements of Jesus by rubbing shoulders with one another. All right? You do not have to be husband and wife to do this. You get, everyone can rub shoulders with one another. And the spiritual practices we're talking about today are how we rub shoulders with Jesus. So we're talking about taking on the nature of the beautiful life that Jesus offers those he has forgiven. Because that is the process of regeneration. Jesus is not, he doesn't bulldoze your life down and say everything about you is crap, we're going to start over. Jesus says, oh man, I look at you. And even though you have all this damage that's been done to you, I see that, heck, I am a brilliant architect. And you are a unique work of art. And even though there's been some vandalism done to the artwork, I see that artwork I formed in you. I see the beauty of who you are. And I want to walk with you. And listen, it is a lot harder to restore an old house than a new build. It is a lot. When I worked for Habitat for Humanity, we did an experiment of acquiring some old houses that had severe damage and rebuilding them. What we found is it took four times more work to fix up an old house versus do something from scratch. But listen, you guys, we are not things like a house. We are people. And people deserve, because God says so, restoration. And repentance, the process of repentance isn't trying harder. It's saying, God, can I enlist you through the power of your resurrection to restore my life? Can you restore me, which takes forever. And you know what? If you've ever seen a beautiful ancient church being restored, if you go to Yorkminster Abbey in England, there's always scaffolding somewhere. There's always scaffolding somewhere because this is an old, old building. But people worship there on a regular basis, and people still go on tours of this beautiful building. Just because you're being renovated doesn't mean you are not acting in enacting the life of God. So 
As we look at Galatians, the, the apex of Galatians is the fruit of the Spirit. The apex of Galatians is the fruit of the Spirit. But I believe we get all these hints, even in Paul's introduction, about what it means to make room for fruit. What do we do? What can every one of us do, no matter where we're at in our life, what can we do to make room for this transformation? And, I'm, and if you are not a follower of Jesus today, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, listen, surrendering your life to Jesus is a big deal, but it's stepping through a threshold. It's making a decision to enter into a new life, almost this multi-dimensional reality where God is a part of everything, and you're reacclimating to a new reality. You know, if, you're, if you live a life that where your vision is so compromised and everything is so blurry that you can just navigate around shapes, and suddenly, or over time, your vision is restored to 2020, you are going to walk differently in a room. If you have 20-20 vision, you're going to walk differently. You're going to notice things. Let's say uh, if you see this person is not just a moving blob, but you can tell by their eyes that this person has been weeping and crying, and you notice the grief that this person carries, that if you were almost blind, you would not have seen it on their face. You will go and engage that person if you're a kind and caring person to see if there's any way you can be present to them. Because your vision has been renewed, you will engage someone differently. But I would say entering into a relationship with Jesus, saying, Jesus, my way doesn't work. I need you to take the reins. Saying, Jesus, if you defeated death, you can repair my life. If you defeated death, you certainly can repair your life. I want Forgive me for everything I've failed at, past, present, and future. Forgive me for all my shortcomings and heal all the ways I've been subject to neglect, abuse, hurt, or deprivation. Work your healing work at me. And Jesus, I want to obey you, not to earn favor to you, but I know obedience to you, Lord Jesus, is to become your hands and feet. That instead of treating people like objects, I become part of the renovation process through your spirit. So, like, for instance, like one way to pray that, say, Jesus, I give up. Life doesn't work on my terms. Uh, I want to be a part of your agenda. I want to be a shareholder in a resurrected life, in a renewed creation for eternity. I want to be a part of your good work. I give you my life, all that it is and all that it isn't. It's a canvas for you to paint on. It's a canvas for you to restore the painting you originally painted. Take my life, it's yours, and I ask for your gentle restoration through every day I'm living for the rest of my life. It's all yours because you're my king and you love me. Amen. I mean, there's a million ways to pray this, but it's basically saying, I give up! <laughs> you have this. But we're, the gateway is Jesus opens a door in our heart to receive the Holy Spirit of Jesus. And that's where transformation takes place. And occasionally, that's where sometimes like crazy healings that are paranormal in nature take place. Sometimes when we let the Holy Spirit in, God gives us insight we otherwise could not have in how to be present to someone else that's hurting. Sometimes God gives us insight to offer a warning to someone who is heading down a path that would cause them great pain or others great pain. 
It's not like this magic thing. It's not like making people wizards or anything. It's a matter of bringing us close to the heart of Jesus where we can be his representatives in blatant situations and in covert pain. So Katie read the passage. And what I want to do is, uh, let's look, I want to truncate things a little bit. I had planned to try some things this service, but we're going to try them next week during Advent. But um, listen, the fruit of the Spirit, it can't be faked. It can't be phoned in. You cannot fake kindness. Now, you can be nice. In fact, some of the biggest jerks I know are nice. Like, you, you can use niceties to manipulate people, but kindness is different. Kindness, niceness is faux kindness. And God did not call us to be nice. I mean, Jesus did many things that weren't nice, but they were robustly kind. You know, telling Peter that his attempt to stop Jesus from suffering was going to disrupt redemption, and that his attempt to stop Jesus from suffering is actually doing the work of the devil was the farthest thing from nice, but it was the closest thing to kind. You know, gentle wounds, gentle wounds. But um, doing what we can do versus doing what we can't do. So in the passage Katie read, um, 11 through 12, says this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by a revelation from Christ. So... If you read Paul's writings, especially the more research you do into like the original language, and especially since in the last 20 years, we have more access to literature written at the same time Paul was writing. And the more literature we read from that moment where Paul was writing, the more we see the genius of Paul. The more we see how his, his intellectual prowess crafted the message he got from God. And we noticed illusions and even invented genres and did forms of poetry that no one else had tried before. We don't see that because it doesn't come out as clear in a translation. All right, Paul had plenty of stylistic elements he could boast about. But his point is the core of that was a revelation that God did all the work. God did all the work to give him this thing that he's using everything he is and everything God is forming to be to deliver to people. But that is a packaging for a gift that was 100% God. And listen, all of us have little different micro-gurus in our life. Maybe we read a self-help book. Maybe we've had a certain kind of therapy. Maybe we've uh, embraced this methodology. And we view the creator of that methodology as a hero. Like David Allen wrote Getting Things Done, and now I'm not, not getting things done anymore. David Allen's awesome. You know, uh, you know, how to win friends influence people. You know, Carnegie changed my life. Or, you know, what's a modern, I don't know, any modern help book? And we start thinking, man, that person's just amazing. Look what they wrote. Right out the bat, Paul is alleging his credentials. His credentialing is based on something God 100% did. And God had a paranormal revelation of his love. That is a form of gratitude. At the core of gratitude, it's not just a feeling, it's not a tone of voice. Gratitude is acknowledging the core of every good thing is something God began. The core of every bit of true gratitude is something God gave you. 
The, the, the element, the empowerment of humility is God did it. God did it. Now, you, you may have excellent talents you bring to the table. Sometimes those talents get in the way. If you have pride in it, definitely. So acknowledging, I believe the first thing that we do to make room for the spirit, making room for the spirit is acknowledging God. Gratitude, making room for the spirit every day. I don't, if you have to carve it, uh, on your, write it in lipstick or crayon on your mirror. Ag gratitude, begin every day. What did God give you that is good amidst all the craziness in your life? That's the first thing I think. And not that these are necessarily an order and this is a magic list. I'm just saying let's observe Paul's life and see how did he, he did what Jesus did by living the way Jesus lived. We can't just, what would Jesus do it? We need to make room. And the first thing is acknowledgement. Um, then he says this in 13, for I've heard, you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Making room for the spirit, compassionately acknowledging our past. You know, when people use the term self-compassion, a lot of people say, oh, that's a bunch of fluffy, duffy, new age hooey. But self-compassion is essentially aligning ourselves with the heart of God who has compassion. And the Holy Spirit joins us in this. Self, if you have compassion on yourself, it doesn't come from your own power. It comes from believing what God says about you. The heart of self-compassion or self-love is not narcissism, it's good theology. The heart of self-compassion self-love is not narcissism, it's just Bible 101. If you read the story, God has compassion on you, don't disagree with God. If you read the story, God accepts you as you are to begin his redemptive work, don't disagree with God. So Paul acknowledges a past that involved murder. Paul acknowledges a past that involved hurting the people that would become his family, injuring the people that are now closest to him. Paul acknowledges past as being the greatest enemy ever to live against the agenda he's currently pursuing. Paul was the initiating factor of the physical and often murderous persecution of Jesus' followers that is happening to this very day around the world and will happen today to certain people. Paul started And Paul, you can hear when he talks about his past that he's not hating on himself. When Paul puts pen to paper, who knows how many times he probably has this picture of self-loathing. And we know that the lifestyle Paul led gave a chance for God to grab him from that pathway and put him of the pathway of receiving compassion. So we cannot have room for the Holy Spirit if we do not have a context for receiving compassion. We cannot be compassionate people. We cannot be truly kind if we do not experience kindness. All right? So once again, there's an active-passive, passive-active thing going on here. Slow down. What do you need to do to get in a headspace where A, you can acknowledge God's love for you, and B, sit in God's love for you? You know how I sit in God's love? Two major ways, or three major ways. 
One way is I call it the recharging deck. I love it when Adrian and I, or Adrian and I and Kathleen, or Ian and I, or Ian and Kathleen and I, whenever we get to sit down on the couch and I just get to put my arms around them, and I say, this is the life. I love you guys. I just feel the love. Or when I embrace a friend, you know, when Kelly comes up and gives me a hug, which she is the pastor of hugging at Central Vineyard, I, I'm like, this is the life. This is the life. This is the act of receiving the compassion of God from one another and believing it's true. That makes space for the Holy Spirit. Thankful, grateful acknowledgement of God makes space for the Holy Spirit. Now, I want... Uh, then Paul... Wait, where's page two? Now here Paul is giving his resume that led him to being a murderous zealot. He said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And by the way, zealous, the word zealous meant I was killing on behalf of it. It went back to the zeal that the Maccabees had when they revolted against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, in the time between the Old and New Testament, zeal was to be a uh, fundamentalist or terrorist, dependent. Zeal was, I will shed blood, I believe this so much. It isn't just, and when he taught, but the difference is being zealous for Christ is the opposite. Zeal for Christ is being healing hands of God, not the sword of God, as uh, the churches conflated themselves with government became a sword of God when they were meant to be the healing of God. All right? So Paul says this. He says, I was advancing Judaism. I read that part. Zealous for the traditions. But then in uh, 16 he says, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, what we know about God is God has called every single one of you when you're sitting inside, gestating inside a mom, God is, the nature of God is to call all of you into his good work. All of you. Now, not everyone responds to the wedding invitation. Not even everyone bothers to send an RSVP, but everyone's invited to show up. And Paul's acknowledging that here. And he called me by his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I may preach him among the Gentiles. But my immediate result was not, my immediate response was not to uh, consult any human being. I didn't go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. So Paul did not see this as a new group of people to embrace their code and climb their social ladder so I could be a path to being a leader. On church, as soon as you're saved, you're going to be a leader. And how do we do this? And how do we keep the pyramid of growth going? Which, by the way, I love intentionally helping people cultivate space for God in their lives and help others cultivate space for God in their life. But sometimes Christians fetishize this ideal of Western leadership to the point where cultivation doesn't happen, yet people climb this so-called leadership I've met people who become pastors and churches who are still unkind or even more unkind when they started the journey. I've seen people who began pastoring church that progressively became more unkind 
because they, their church kept growing so big that they thought it was about them. And it's the reverse journey. But what is Paul doing here that makes space for the Holy Spirit? For the fruit of the Spirit, he's calling other people to experience. He is owning his past. And he's not covering it up. He's not covering up his past. That's more of the previous one. But two, he's cultivating an unmediated relationship with Jesus. He's cultivating a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, you need to understand something. Is the whole of the New Testament mostly is devoted to teach us how to have a communal relationship with Jesus. Most of the New Testament is teaching us how to be a family of followers of Jesus. Most of the New Testament is about how can we have an interpersonal relationship with Jesus. But part of the interpersonal relationship with Jesus, an ingredient of that greater vision of the people of God, is a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, in our nation, it was founded on personal liberty. And in our Western culture that values individualism above collectivism, we've taken this personal relationship with Jesus, and we've, we've described it as a door you enter through, and then you stay right by the entrance of the door trying to get everyone to come in with you. When really, is you enter through this door, and you keep entering and entering, and keep sending letters back to the opening of the door, saying, oh man, God is so good. But you keep entering, you keep getting closer to that door. I mean, to, the, to Jesus, through that door. You don't just wait at the door and says, hey, guys, look at this door jam here. Look at these hinges, you're really missing out. I mean, just stepping four inches away from where I used to be, this, this, this is a great door. You need to go through this door. And everyone who doesn't go through this door is wrong. And no, the door is just the door. The personal relationship is initiated by God, and then the growing personal relationship with God is, oh, is generally through solitude. Paul went to Arabia. Many commentators believe Paul actually went to Sinai, and presumably spent like 16 to 17 years probably deconstructing his take on the Jewish Torah. Deconstructing his take on the Jewish Torah because... Somehow, he read all that to think he's supposed to organize killing. And you can get that. You can get that out of the Torah. There's a way to get that out of the Torah. But he was looking, now that Jesus is the clearest revelation from God, how do I see Jesus working through the Torah? He had to reread the whole thing. And he spent 17 years reorienting himself. Much of that in solitude. And you know, he was, he was doing what Jesus did. You know, Jesus, after the crowds, he would ghost on them and get alone. In the morning, the disciples are like, oh no, we lost Jesus again. Where's Jesus? And they'd find Jesus walked two miles away. He was praying, spending time alone with God. Like, Jesus, where are you going? We keep losing you. Do we, we need to get like a tracking collar on you or something. Jesus spent time alone because he was God who was fully human. And he needed to engage in the practices to sustain his connection to God the Father and teach us how to sustain our connection to God the Father. So the other way we make space is we have time with God without others. Not just to have our personal relationship with God, not 
to have our private religion because private religion is toxic. There are religions that have private options. Like within a more of neo-pagan practices, you know, uh, you can, uh, let's say Wicca, you can be, be join a coven or you can be what they call a solitary practitioner where it's just me and the earth goddess and no one else. And they have an option for the people that do not play well with others. If you, if you don't like humans, you can be a solitary practitioner. That option is not available to followers of Christ. Even monks who go live in the desert in monasteries do that, keeping in mind that we are here to show hospitality to all the pilgrims who come our way, and we're praying for the greater church. We are keeping informed of what's happening to the greater church. And every couple hours, as a group, we pray for those people. Even monks in solitude are interpersonally tied into the body of Christ. What doesn't exist is personal relationship with Jesus and nothing else. Because only a personal relationship with Jesus doesn't enact soul transformation. But making room, so really quickly, I'd like the worship guys to come up, worship people to come up and everyone to stand. And I want to... Uh, involve you guys in a prayer. And if you have a phone or something you take notes on, please open it up to your note app. All right? But I want to encourage you guys to do this more often because I believe God's going to speak to you. And if he speaks to you, you're going to forget what he says unless you write it down. It just happens. And we don't have much object permanence when it comes to certain things because of our broken nature. So... Everyone ready to write something down in case they have something to write down? Uh, good. I mean, close our eyes, kind of zone this. Maybe we can get some ambiance going on. And I want to pray and make room for the Holy Spirit to do something. And so let's see if he does. Friends, let's invite the Holy Spirit. If you want it, you can put out your hands. Holy Spirit, come. Father God, uh, in my relationship with you, and ask that you would personally connect with me in this crowded room, Father God. And Father God, I want you to show me some immediate acts of obedience. Just give me some simple, stupid, simple things I can do following the service that will make room for me to be like you, Jesus. Because I, I want to be kind. I want to be patient. I need self-control. Give me a next action, God. First uh, thing I want to ask is, God, how do you want me every single day to begin by acknowledging, gratefully acknowledging you? God, what can I do, what can I schedule to gratefully acknowledge you? Let's just listen to God on this. is if Jesus is right in everything he says, which we believe he is, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, show me what it means to reflect your compassion towards myself. Show me, Jesus, what it means to reflect your compassion on myself. So what, what we're asking God, saying, God, give us an action we can engage in every day for the next seven days. What action can we engage in that expresses compassion on ourselves?
ourselves. What thing can we do to make room for this God? Feel free to be tapping this out on your phone if you got or a piece of paper or carve it into a Rosetta Stone. I don't know. Grateful acknowledgement, spirit-empowered self-compassion. Third thing, Jesus Christ, in your Holy Spirit, show me how I can get alone with you. Jesus, how can I make space for the solitude to empower me to be in community? How can I make space for the solitude to empower me, me to be in community? Prayer folks, if you can make it to the sides of the front, we're gonna offer a chance to receive prayer. Uh, friends, um, we're gonna spend, let's see, we've got, we're running, we're gonna, if you need prayer for anything, we're gonna celebrate communion. And while we're celebrating communion, ask the Lord if there's anything you can get prayer for today and then do it. So Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed, he gave thanks. He was grateful on a night he knew he was betrayed. How's that for centering? Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed gave thanks. He broke the bread. The Passover man said, this is my body, which is for you. Whenever you eat, remember me. After the supper, he took the cup everyone had been drinking out of because there wasn't a global pandemic going on. He took the cup and said, this cup is new covenant. It's a new operating system in my blood. Every time you drink it, you are downloading my way of life into your soul. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul added, do this until Jesus returns. We can't get enough of Jesus. We can't get too much of Jesus. There's no way to overdose on Jesus. All the time do this. So, glory be to God. Enjoy his presence. So, uh, we got some prayer folks up. Get prayer before you leave tonight. Many of you are entering into uncharted waters over Thanksgiving. And God, we need it. Amen. Amen.